Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now, here's your host, Nick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When I'm on the answering end of interviews, perhaps the question I am asked most of all is, what scares you? Well, something I've been afraid of that's been creeping up on us for years now seems to be coming true. And as a creator in the world of horror, it's happening right now in our movie theaters around the country. Though there is no dearth of horror movies on our movie screens, the single original tales of terror are taking a backseat to the ubiquitous franchise movies and reboots. And I fear for the future of original idiosyncratic horror movies. The generations of Halloweens and Saws and Purges and Candymen and Nightmares on Elm Street and Screams and all their siblings are good for the genre and I'm happy for their successes. I always hope for our genre to reign supreme at the box office in the hopes that it will keep theatrical horror alive. However, with the studios limiting their interest in advertising and marketing budgets to the movies they think they know how to sell, original voices, iconoclastic filmmakers with a singular vision, are producing excellent genre movies, and yet those one-shot stories, truly original, surprising, satisfying films in the dark universe, get lost at the multiplex. It's heartbreaking to see truly outstanding films like Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, Scott Cooper's Antlers, produced by Guillermo del Toro, James Wan's Malignant, Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, and so many other deserving theatrical releases fail to find an audience. For the studios, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They are looking to find properties to turn into franchises, and in the process, freestanding, unique stories just aren't given a chance. And when a screenwriter or a director with a vision offers up something new and different, the studio reaction is to point to the limp ticket sales of the original films and say, the franchises are a sure bet. We don't want to take chances on something new anymore and the cycle begins all over again. If you enjoy seeing movies in theaters and don't want all the original visions to only be available streamed, as I do, then it's our responsibility to support those one-shot standalone fright fests. Go to the movies. Don't wait for them to drop on Netflix or Hulu or Shudder. See them in their big screen glory. Movies, the ones in our genre particularly, are best experienced, shared, and on the biggest screen and with the best sound possible. So join me in the popcorn line and let's see Last Night in Soho again together at the movies where God intended. The horror genre has a long, proud history going back well into the silent era. And our guest today is probably the world's premier chronicler of horror movies from their very beginnings, particularly focusing on the universal horror classics. His many books and documentaries are the best sources of information about the birth and growth of cinematic horror that you can find. We'll be back to talk with David J. Skull about how the horror genre was born and grew up after this. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around mental health. For example, some people think you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy, but that just isn't true. Therapy is a tool to utilize before things get worse, and it can help you to avoid those lows. And we've been taught that mental health shouldn't be a part of normal life, but that's wrong too. We take care of our bodies with the gym, the doctor, and nutrition. We should be focusing on our minds just as much. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers you video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and postmortem listeners get a 10% discount off their first month at betterhelp.com slash postmortem. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash postmortem. Coming soon to dread, ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched will be available on demand and digital everywhere on January 18th. Pre-order on iTunes now. Ditched. David, how did it start with you? What was the horror film that tickled your fancy? Oh, boy. Um, excavating my memories, I'm trying to remember the... I was trying to remember the very first uh, exposure I had to to a horror movie, and I believe it was at the age of six when I saw a Saturday televised uh, screening of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh, that's a good starting point. And it was part of the original uh, shock theater package. And they All would show the universal it. pictures. Yeah, they would show it a couple of times a week on television. Um, um, remember, back back then, it wasn't possible to see anything on demand. There was right. no streaming. There was no home video. And my interest kind of coincided with... Uh, with a relative dearth of ways to uh, access these things. Uh, I saw, I think I saw King Kong in a theatrical re-release in the late wow. 50s. Mm. This is, uh, I, I was a kindergartner, I, I think. Wow. And uh, I know I saw The Wizard of Oz uh, in its last theatrical, thing. I must have been three Wow, to see those on the big screen at that age, what yeah. a great opportunity. Yeah, and I still have some strong... Uh, Memories of the, uh, uh, of 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 the uh, the uh, the Winkies coming upon our heroes in <laughs> in their hiding place, and I remember that is my very first fantasy you know film uh, memory of all time. But I got uh, interested in uh, the Universal films um, during a period where they weren't being shown on Cleveland television. Uh-huh. And uh, this was very frustrating because I had started reading the uh, uh, the monster magazines, primarily Famous Monsters of Filmland. Yeah. And these films seemed like they must be the most important, exciting movies ever made, only because you couldn't see them. You could just imagine them. <laughs> and then you found out they really were. <laughs> well, not, not always. <laughs> but the, uh, but uh, when I started to do my book, The Monster Show, um, which I first intended to be just a kind of a more detailed and behind-the-scenes chronicle of, uh, of, of the genre. And as I got into it, I suddenly started picking up on these, these uh, cultural and social overtones, and it seemed like every decade there was something. And the very first chapter I wrote, I went back to my own uh, discovery of these things. It was the uh, uh, chapter that ended up with the title, Drive-Ins Are a Ghoul's Best Friend. <laughs> and it was all about the, the growth of monster fandom in the, in, in the early 60s. And I remember not being afraid of monsters. Monsters never scared me. 
But there was something I was scared about, and uh, I had just blocked it out completely. And that's something the horror genre does a lot. It lets us process things uh, that, that uh, rattle us without having to look at them too directly. And that's exactly what I did, because I forgot that my entire you know, baptism into, uh, into famous monsters and the Aurora model kits and all the uh, associated things coincided precisely with the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. um, which scared the hell out of me, and I hadn't thought about it in years. I mean, it was my first real exposure to the idea of, uh, uh, you know, self-extermination. It, it was uh, a lot to deal with. I was, I was like 10 years old. Real-life horror suddenly being something yeah. you were aware of in ways that you hadn't been in a world of fantasy horror. Yes, and I remember all of those the big headlines in the papers about the, uh, 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 the, uh, the Russian atomic testing things and how many more megatons and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I remember asking my mother about, are we going to get blown up? No, no, David, we only have wars in other countries. Hmm. Um, that might not be so true <laughs> yes. in the near future, but uh, it was back then, sadly. Um, and um, I, I was a Cub Scout at that time, and uh, as part of your membership, you got a subscription to Boys Life magazine. Right. And the October issue came, October 1962, right up against the missile crisis with a full-page color ad for the uh, Aurora Universal Monster Kits. Oh, yeah. Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. I remember those. I got an award as a master monster maker for one of those. It's a decorate your room, surprise your mother, <laughs> create your very own chamber of horrors. Yeah. It sounded like a great idea to me. <laughs> and uh, so I really threw myself into it. I think to, you know, as much for as... Uh, much reason to blot out things I didn't want to look at, and and this is just one of the the uh, uh, the dynamics of of the horror genre and the and what it's uh, chosen. But I I got through uh, uh, the missile crisis. We all seem to have, uh, and I'm so glad Joe Dante uh, did matinee, matinee and, and really kind it. of commemorated that moment. You can't think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and not think about Matinee and Mant. Right. The rest of the world wasn't thinking about monsters. No. The way we were, but... Uh, Us monsters. They were, they were nuclear security blankets. I mean, mm. think about it. They, they, were, they were things that couldn't die. Right. Uh, just this threat of death, and here, you know, uh, uh, Dracula could stare down the atom bomb. And I guess we all chose our favorite monsters for different reasons um most monsters are kind of out of control and you there and the reasons you know that uh, teenage boys especially um uh you know flock to them has to do with that kind of identification the aggression for me it was it was dracula who seemed like he was in total control mm-hmm. of every situation every circumstance and um uh, and uh, he was the one I wanted to identify with. I, my, uh, my imagination you know, itself was, was way out of control. Uh, well, you've got the definitive book on the creation of Dracula from its literary antecedents up through the film work with Hollywood Gothic, which that was the first book of yours I read, and I guess it was your first nonfiction book after having written three novels. Yeah, I started out as a science fiction writer, Yeah, uh, writing very creepy kind of science fiction. Mm. Uh, very uh, People often said my books were Cronenberg-esque, and wow. I take that as a... A compliment. I um, would say of a high nature. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, and I'm returning to it in my in my old age. I had several unfinished novels, and I'm rebooting some of my original things that uh, I really I, I started writing them in college, hmm. and uh, I think the thing that attracted me to science fiction was the grotesque images, the grotesquely distorted societies. All the things it kind of shares with uh, science fiction, and and my favorite science fiction writers were people like Bradbury, right, and 
Harlan Ellison, who yeah. became a personal mentor and friend. And uh, it's funny, uh, Harlan Ellison and Forrest J. Ackerman are the two men who made me want to be a writer. Uh-huh. And uh, they couldn't be, they they loathed each other. <laughs> yes, I know. And... <laughs> And, well, they uh, couldn't be more different personalities. Either. No, and yeah. and and uh, Harlan disapproved of my interest in and when he got a whiff of one of the old Universal films and my stories. He would just stomp and scream and tell me to grow <laughs> up. Uh, but uh, I think the thing about uh, they were they were both. Well, I throw Bradbury in there too. Uh, these were. Uh, these were these guys were master stylists of their own kind. Yeah. Ackerman's not kind of a literary, but but he like he liked to play with words. Right. And I still I still do the puns. I still have so much alliteration <laughs> yes. in my first drafts that I've got to take out. Yeah. And uh, well, Bradbury so, was my biggest inspiration as a writer as well. I'd read everything he'd written at the time I was twelve years old. Yeah, and he was uh, you know one of these uh, he kind of fell between the cracks. Genre-wise, yeah, he uh, as started the, writing noir novels in his later yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, J.G. Ballard and I, I was never interested in hard science fiction, right? Um, spaceships, I spaceships, suppose. and and gadgets, and it was always the uh, um, the science. It, 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 no, it was who gets hurt. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst thing that could happen with the scientific mm, development? So and you can so, bludgeon your audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so for a number of years, I uh, I paid for a lot of my college expenses by uh, publishing short stories in the in the science fiction magazines like uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction and Amazing and and uh, they uh, doing a novel was was difficult though hmm. I when you I had done the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop uh, two times. And it's great for teaching how to write short stories. Right. It doesn't do anything to help you discipline yourself to uh, uh, do something long, long form. Yeah. And a novel is a different kettle of fish. And so I did a short story that I just couldn't. I was trying to put too much into a very small short story. And I uh, went back home. It was the year after I graduated from college and before I started a, an internship at the National Endowment for the Arts in Washington. And I had uh, had a couple of months to learn, teach myself how to write a novel. And um, the story opened with, with a, a woman waking up, not knowing where she was, who she was, and in bed with this guy who she didn't have any uh, recollection of. And I said, okay, it's Monday. You can't let her out of bed until Friday. <laughs> and gradually I developed, uh, you know, uh, an ability to concentrate and, and, um, and build stories. So I did have three books published by the time my agent asked me if I'd ever considered nonfiction. Yeah. And I said, um, no, why? And she said, "Well, you don't have to finish the damn book. You can. I can get you a contract based on a wow. proposal and a, and some sample chapters." And I said, "Well, well as that's... someone who majored in journalism, a nonfiction book seems to be an obvious choice." It does, but I was I I, I kind of moved into arts journalism, and mm. uh, my uh, salary jobs for quite a long time were um, in the theater doing marketing and publicity and promotion and um, people ask me how how do I get to be a a writer just like you and I say well, keep your day job <laughs> yes as long as you possibly can good advice and so she said any any topics you wanted to well you know when I was a kid I had uh, I was just crazy about those old uh, universal horror films especially Dracula and I've never read the backstory. Yeah. And I knew there had to be. By th and by that time, I was uh, uh, at work in regional theaters, and then I had my own consulting business, uh, 
creating campaigns and promo for them. And I was well aware that there's always a backstory in the performing arts. Right. And there are personalities that need to be uh, uh, exhumed and excavated and uh, uh, brought to light. And I said, but I never, I never saw any of that. And she said, well, I was going on vacation. And she said, well, before you go, can you give me a one-page pitch on this? And uh, it was going to be called something, it was going to be called Dracula, the Book of the Film. Mm -hmm. Because I had uh, stumbled across at the Library of Congress this incomplete um uh, print of the Spanish version of Dracula, uh -huh. which Dracula disappointed me like crazy when I first saw it. I had to wait really? six years until I finally saw it in a theater uh, on a revival bill with, with Frankenstein. And all of these years, I've been looking at the pictures, collecting pictures, reading about it in Famous Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, this has got to be the best movie ever, ever made. <laughs> and it was this creaky thing. I mean, Lugosi is, you know, what, uh, what carries it. Uh, um, but it's, it's not directed like James Whale directed Frankenstein. Oh, not it's at all. Very stagey and uh, no, it was kind of uh, Browning was very lucky because he was a master of silent, silent technique. Right. And Dracula is in many ways a silent film. Yeah. Um, it was prepared in a silent version for theaters that weren't uh, uh -huh. wired for sound. Uh, a, a, a huge number of intertitles, like twice as many as Browning had ever used in his films before. But uh, despite his voice and and uh, uh, the famous dialogue from Dracula, Lugosi gives a pantomime performance, mm -hmm. and it's in the silences. Yeah. That, that those are the images. You, it's it's him standing, staring, uh, hovering. Uh, you anticipate him. You know, you're not. Uh, which is kind of what you do in the book with, with Bram Stoker. Right. Well, let's, let's talk about that history. You, you have chronicled it more than anyone and more completely and uh, with great observation. So let's talk about how the book came about and who Stoker was before he became a novelist and he worked in the theater. Then Dracula becomes a theater piece, then becomes a movie. Tell us about that transition because it's, such a, a a a focal point of where our genre began. It it is absolutely. Uh, Stoker was a man of the theater, and if you don't understand the Victorian theater, you can't really understand where Dracula came from. Um, he was the right hand man. Uh, a, a Stoker. He he was an Irishman. He grew up in Dublin. He went to Trinity College. He was a civil servant like his father for. Um, a number of years, but his passion was the theater, and he started contributing free um, theater reviews to the local papers. And um, how he did all of this, he he couldn't have slept <laughs> because he was uh, uh, he had a very um, demanding job. Uh, at uh, uh, Dublin Castle, which was the seat of government. And um, he had a mind for statistics and, and, and mathematics. And uh, he really was a kind of a savant on a number of levels. I th think he wrote first draft. He wrote as if he were taking dictation. Mm -hmm. uh, automatic writing. Uh, it's wow. not surprising he was interested in spiritualism and and I think that's exactly the way he, uh, uh, the way he wrote. But he didn't do much fiction. I mean, Dracula was kind of something that was new for him. He no, actually, he did. Uh, really? He did, yes, okay, he did. I stand did novels and a lot of stories. Yeah. He started uh, writing stories in Dublin. I think a lot of them went into the trunk and ended up in later collections. But uh, he wanted to to write. Uh, adventure stories and there was mm -hmm. always this kind of supernatural element to them and um, and he wrote for money uh, he couldn't turn down the chance to work with his theatrical idol Sir Henry Irving right. who he met on uh, one of his tours to Ireland 
and uh, he was going to take over the management of the Lyceum Theater mm -hmm. and install his own company there. And uh, he, he, he was a theatrical superstar right. at the time. I mean, he was about as famous as any movie star you mm -hmm. know, is today. And um, I don't think Stoker uh, negotiated very well for himself <laughs> for his salary. Uh, he, um, he was getting married. He had uh, uh, stolen away the fiance of Oscar Wilde. Which There's an very... accomplishment for you. Oh, and they and the, oh, their their orbits. I later wrote a, a whole bio of uh, Stoker. That's really a bio right. of Wilde as well, because their lives are so so completely intertwined. They're the George Harrison and Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, Florence Stoker was this uh, amazing um, um, uh, beauty uh, in the kind of the pre-Raphaelite mode um she had that kind of uh, that kind of a profile that you see in the the, the women in burn jones paintings and, mm -hmm. and um and she seemed to just attract a lot of theatrical um uh, literary demonism i mean the three i mean she wilde wanted to marry her the creator of dorian gray right dracula uh's creator bram stoker and um uh, uh georges du Maurier, who wrote uh, trilby Right. The Svengali story right. uh, said she was one of the three most beautiful women he had ever seen. And, and she uh, became very important to the Dracula legacy uh, after Stoker's death. Absolutely. She became reasons. a formidable person. She had theatrical ambitions, and uh, I think both she and, and Stoker expected uh, Henry Irving to elevate her in the theater. Uh. And uh, that just didn't happen. She got a couple of walk-on parts. I think she was very bitter, mm -hmm. you know, about that. But she was a formidable personality. And uh, well, let's uh, let's talk about the effect that the novel had when it came out, because it was very much its own creature at its own time. Uh, it, it really was. was. It you know, it's uh, uh, people often refer to it as a gothic novel. Um, it really isn't. Gothic novels were a hundred years earlier, mm -hmm. and uh, people like Anne Radcliffe and uh, um, and then they weren't supernatural. They they seemed supernatural. They were set in crumbling castles, and there were uh, uh, scary things and sadistic, monstrous people. Right. But there weren't any uh, real vampires and right. and that. What Stoker did was. We think of it as a period novel, but it's it's not. At the time, it was an absolutely contemporary book. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And this was the thing that the, the, the critics praised the most. They said, what an original idea, taking this medieval superstition and bringing it to uh, uh, modern-day modern day yeah. London. Yeah. And uh, it was a steady back, you know, back burner uh uh, earner for Stoker. It did not make him rich in his lifetime by any was means. Was it a sensation when it came out? It was very well received. Mm -hmm. It was not a bestseller. Uh, uh -huh. He was Stoker was not the Stephen King of. <laughs> his, there was no Stephen King of, right. of the time. Um, uh, one of his best friends was uh, a novelist named Hall Kane, who really was one of the best-selling writers in the world at the time, and who he. Uh, he emulated and he um, um, agented. Uh, he did so many. Th he he needed money so badly. He uh, he studied for the bar and he uh, became a barrister, although he didn't practice. I think he was always looking for some kind of fallback to get out of the theater. Right. And um, it never happened. And I think it put a strain on his marriage. And uh, I mean his. Despite what happened to Oscar Wilde, uh, uh, his wife almost married him, <laughs> and uh, there there are letters between uh, Florence and her, uh, the female members of her family, and they all agreed that uh, if she had married Oscar Wilde, she would have kept him in line, and he would not have <laughs> gotten into trouble. And, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> so so this came from a a theatrical world in that that was the world that Stoker lived in and worked in. Yes. But then it, this literary, he became an author 
and then it makes its way back to the theatrical world later when John Balderston uh, yes, it's adapts a very, it to the Broadway theater. He um, he had theatrical ambitions to it. I think he wanted to, if he could have been a playwright, he would have. But and uh, had he lasted longer, had he yeah. lasted. Uh, he wanted Henry Irving to play Dracula, and yeah. Irving thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> oh, no. He, he staged a, a reading. It was on the very morning that Oscar Wilde was released from from prison, he staged this four-and-a-half-hour staged reading of Dracula, for supposedly for copyright purposes, but it was uh. also to uh, take over the Lyceum stage and uh, dream of uh, some creative fusion with with his uh, idol, Henry Irving. And uh, Irving apparently poked his head in and somebody asked him, what do you think? And he said, dreadful. And <laughs> when your idol says that, and I think that, that And that story came yeah. from, from Stoker's son, so I, I absolutely uh-huh. believe it. Uh, but uh, motion pictures were in their very infancy at the time. Stoker might have included motion pictures in his in his books because he uh, was fascinated by by uh, gadgetry. Uh, the Kodak camera is in is in Dracula. Oh, right, there are a lot of right. up to date references, very much like Stephen King. There right. are contemporary references that are just commercial products and things. They're instantly yeah. uh, identifiable to the characters and to the readers, and. Uh, and so they uh, are much more willing to suspend disbelief. Right. It's not a completely fantastic world. No, it's you're got... living in a real world that has that steps into the nether world. Yeah, and it's all about the tension between science and superstition. Yeah. Which was uh, really kind of drove the 19th century in many ways. But well, St- Stoker wanted he never um, except for that staged reading, he never saw Dracula dramatized. And it uh, fell to his his widow, to um, and he he published uh, you know a do- more than a dozen novels and and uh, collections of stories and but only Dracula, you know, continued to steadily make money. It resonated with people. Yeah, yeah. and uh, his wife was able. She was kind of thrust into a, a kind of genteel poverty. Hmm. Uh, well, interestingly, she was in 1922. There was a version of Dracula, but it was called Nosferatu, and she was responsible for stamping it out. Yeah, she. Well, she tried. Uh, yeah, well, of course she she didn't, but uh, she got wind of it. Um, I think the year after it was released in Germany, and. No, it was actually she. She was uh, informed of the, the 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 premiere, and saw that the credits uh, described it as freely adapted from Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> and she could certainly agree with that because yeah. uh, she hadn't been paid a cent, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and she set off on a, uh, and it, it was this cachet of papers I found at the uh, at the British Library that. No, um, no researcher had tapped before, but uh, after she joined uh, in in the name of her husband, she joined the British Society of Authors after his death to protect his works. Yeah. Yes, and uh, they didn't know what they were getting into <laughs> at all because uh, Stoker had not been a member, had paid nothing into the society, but uh, she was very well connected, uh, you know, socially and. And uh, artistically, uh, in uh, in London, and they found they just couldn't refuse her, and she just insisted that they they uh, uh, pursue this in in the German courts. Yeah, and um, and they did, and it's it's just the uh, the correspondence is just this soap opera. Wow. That goes on and on, and but they ended up destroying almost all of the prints. Right? The German courts ordered the um, all prints and negatives destroyed but by that time the film had been shipped all over the world there were right there were uh, prints the uh, the negative probably was destroyed uh, but there were some pristine prints and in fact uh, Universal Pictures acquired one of them oh. because when they found out there was this plagiarism out there they almost uh, said no we're not going to do Dracula because mm. the copyright seems to be clouded 
and uh, Stoker had botched the American copyright. It had never been in copyright in the United States. Oh, wow. And uh, it's one of the best kept secrets, mm. <laughs> uh, you know, more. about it. But by that time, they were interested in the, uh, the stage adaptation. Right. In response to Nosferatu, Florence Stoker hired uh, a playwright, uh, a producer manager named Hamilton Dean, uh, yeah. Who stormed the province, barnstormed the provinces with his uh, his repertory company, and uh, was not uh, didn't have much of a reputation, you know, in the in the West End. But uh, in one of his company members, uh, I got to meet some of these people. You know, at wow. the, you know, they were all in their nineties. Yeah. But one of his company members told me. Uh, you know, he was an absolute god in the provinces and, mm-hmm. and uh, had a very loyal following. And it fell to him to figure out how to put um, Dracula on stage. He thought Nosferatu had been a, uh, a stage plagiarization. Ah, he didn't okay. even know about the movie. Right. Uh, but he had to completely rethink the, the story uh, because... The book, it was well. For one thing, it was written in the form of letters and diaries, and it had this vast geographical sweep and scope and yeah. uh, trans, uh, you know, European chases and and sea journeys, and you know, you 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 couldn't do it. And Dracula himself, there was a reason Henry Irving turned down the part. Uh, it wasn't really stage worthy. It was not a star vehicle. Right. Uh, people often they they point to uh, Irving as Mephistopheles in his production of Faust <laughs> right. as being the uh, well his Faust was his, his Mephistopheles in Faust was so unlike Dracula he was not a creature of the shadows right. uh, it looks like he's wearing a long black cape it was actually crimson and uh, he took the uh, center stage and he took the spotlight <laughs> and. Uh, he uh, uh, was there to charm the audience and seduce the audience, and and uh, uh, Stoker's Dracula was just completely unsuited for him, right. and also unsuited for the stage because people in the book just spend all their time worrying about him, <laughs> yeah. and he's hovering and he's going to attack, and he, and there are some wonderful set pieces where he he does attack, but uh, he's. He doesn't interact in a normal, dramatic fashion. Right. So the only model that made sense was the uh, the nineteen twenties drawing room mystery melodrama. Right. And this is what Dean did, and he had to rethink Dracula completely. He to had sand to sand off all of the edges of what yes, made Dracula great. He yeah. was no longer this, uh, you know, this smelly old man. In his uh, cobwebby castle, uh, he was a dapper man about town and uh, uh, in evening clothes. Uh, Which is how we think of him these days. Yeah. And uh, he kind of fell back on the one of the traditional you know, images of the stage magician. Yeah. And it was like a magic show because there were all these uh, practical special effects. And mm. there were flash bombs and disappearing boxes. The, the, the coffin in which Dracula is destroyed was was considered a, a wonderful illusion for its time. Nice. And it, uh, um, lots of stage tricks and things. Stoker wouldn't, many of the reviews said this, you know, Bram Stoker wouldn't uh, have any idea of what was going on here, but it's it's a very entertaining show. <laughs> he wouldn't recognize it. So that's why Universal wasn't so worried about the book copyright. Right. They wanted the equity in the stage play. So how did it travel across the pond to Broadway? Um, it did. Dean moved it to the West End. He really didn't want to because he was making enough money in the provinces. Right. He had like three different companies. Uh, but one, to earn the respect, you needed to play the West End. And um, and he did, and he brought the thing finally uh, with one of his. He had three companies: the the Red, White, and Blue Company. <laughs> and the actor who played Dracula was a twenty-four-year-old actor named. Raymond Huntley, who was just starting out and who I was able to meet in the last year of his life. And he was, his memories were, were quite vivid about all this. So wow. 
he regretted doing it because he said I, he kept reminding me that he and Gilgood were the same age and had <laughs> gone to the same uh, dramatic school and uh, he could have been doing serious things and advancing his career. Had he not played Dracula. And he said, I consider it an indiscretion of my youth. <laughs> but he took it to the West End and the reviews were appalling. And oh. I, uh, I, I I quote them all very generously because bad, really bad reviews. You've got to They're quote at length. <laughs> and they just eviscerated it. Yeah. And Dean said, well, we, we've we got to be... Uh, they opened at a, a place called the Little Theater in the West End where that it had a big success with uh, English adaptation of, adaptations of the French Grand Guignol plays. Ah. And uh, where they had had a, uh, a nurse in attendance to administer smelling salts, and, <laughs> and they the they William redid Castle the, effect. Yeah, that's right. And uh, William Castle, uh, uh, he got his ideas from about about those kind of gimmicks. Yeah, by seeing the New York production of Dracula, in which the nurses were out front with the smelling salts. Oh, they did vi- that in the American yes. Broadway production. And he was he was very impressed. He was uh, a kid. His name was William Schloss, and he... Um, uh, Schloss, which was German for castle. Yes, of course. Yeah. And he um, realized what a, what a powerful uh, kind of public relations that was. Wow. And, it, uh, and he became the master of gimmicks. But it all goes yeah. back to... It goes back to, basically, to Sybil Thorndike and her Grand Guignol season in mm-hmm. London before Dracula. And well, then Dracula, when it came to the U.S., it was not the same production at all. It was it was totally rewritten. rewritten. John Balderston was the British uh, uh, correspondent for the New York World, and uh, he had a lot of uh, wonderful things he covered. He covered the uh, the opening of King Tut's tomb. Wow! Um, not surprisingly, he worked on Universal's The Mummy as well right, later on. Of course, but. Uh, he agreed to do it, but he told the uh, uh, the New York producer, uh, you know, Horace Livwright, who was a very flamboyant character in the 19th, kind of created the jazz age in many ways. Mm. Uh, but he said, this this British play is, uh, oh, we just, we skipped over something. Dean was destroyed by these terrible reviews. Right. And he said, I guess we're, we're leaving town. <laughs> the end <laughs> Back of the to week. the provinces. Yeah. And he said, "Oh no, we're not." Do you see the uh, the line at the box office? And oh wow! And it literally went around the block. Oh. And it it was re- a review proof production. Oh, it became the and people's still, play. Yeah. It beca- became people's play. It's still uh, that version isn't is sometimes produced, but not very often. But, uh, you know, as a stage play, it's still considered to be really good luck for theater companies to, if you're having difficulties, put on Dracula. <laughs> and uh, because it's, uh, it's review proof and it's, uh, it, it's production proof. Wow. The worst productions make This is why horror movies, you know, they're a sure bet for investors because it's really difficult for a horror movie to lose money. And that's why so many people... Uh, These days, know, a little easier. <laughs> well, yes, all that, of the various platforms. Traditionally, so people make traditionally. Uh, it it was a very good bet, and uh, yeah. it was like the the horror of Dracula, uh, called Dracula in England. Um, right. At the time it came out, it had the highest uh, cost to profit ratio wow. of any English film. Wow, and that's nineteen fifty seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it comes to the U.S., and it were there other horror-themed productions popular at that time? Yes, there were. There were uh, there were shows on, uh, on Broadway, mystery melodramas, uh, which also became uh, Hollywood uh, horror films: The Cat and the Canary, hmm. Doctor X, right, uh, and. Um, and Dracula followed. Universal had uh, had represent had at least one representative in the audience opening night. Mm. Uh, Raymond Huntley had turned down the part because they offered him so little money to come do it in the states. Right. And uh, well, lucky us. They 
and uh, Bela Lugosi uh, took it, I think, for even took he accepted the bad offer or even less money. Yeah, and uh, the producers didn't know what they were getting into with him either because he he certainly uh, fit the part, you know, uh, uh, physically, and he had played a number of. Uh, heavy foreign parts on, on the New York stage, uh, he could barely understand English. Right. And the uh, Balterston said they reached a compromise where uh, he'd worked all over Europe as an actor and uh, knew enough French that they were able to direct Lugosi in French. <laughs> oh, my God. But it created problems when uh, another actor went up on his or her lines. Wow, what the, a gamble to hire an actor under those circumstances. He got he he got called up on equi equity charges and sued by uh, um, a production company for misrepresenting his his uh, Ability abilities to, speak, to English, uh, yeah. speak English. But that uh, so Universal's there on opening night on Broadway. It's a sensation. Lugosi is Dracula. And then it makes the transition. The right the right director and the right package with Lugosi to become a universal movie. But not that easy. Uh, the, uh, uh, there had never been a supernaturally themed scary movie in, in, in Hollywood. Right, even Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback. There, they were Dame, always, real there, there were scary characters, often, most often played by Lon Chaney, right. the Man of a Thousand Faces. And who was con who the, uh, Carl Lemley Sr. He would just hand it over the reins of the studio to his 21-year-old son. Uh, said the only way this could work, and and the depression was kicking in too at this at this point. Um, we've got to do this with Cheney, or we don't do it. And Todd Browning had been directing Cheney. They they were, and he had worked at uh, uh, Universal. At Universal. Right? the the 20s too so they they did get they got browning services but uh uh cheney was not uh was not well uh he had throat cancer he had at throat the time. Can he yeah. had uh, uh it, it was lung cancer actually lung cancer okay and it, but it was one of the biggest kept secrets in in hollywood mm -hmm. and he had made one talking picture a remake of the unholy three right that he had done with uh browning and uh Universal finally, um, MGM was interested in the rights to Dracula. Mm -hmm. So was Paramount. And when it was revealed that uh, you know Cheney uh, had, had just suddenly died, I mean, just came as yeah. This is stunning. Nineteen thirty. Yeah. This is August of nineteen thirty. Um, Lemley Senior said, "No, we'll buy the rights. I don't want uh, MGM to <laughs> to have them for any reason." And uh, so they had grand plans for Dracula. It was going to follow up All Quiet on the Western Front as a prestige production of a that famous... That was their big Academy Award winner, and that, James Whale. And... It, it was uh, uh, It was a big feather in the cap for uh, uh, Carl Lemley Jr. It was his first production, and so he was given... Uh, given free reign but they, they had they had thought who else could do they had thought about they had floated dracula out there for a long time they had floated it in 1915 but then they found out that there was something wrong with the copyright and the way it was registered uh, uh so it could have predated phantom of the opera and it the did and then they the, then they announced it in 1920 there was a little mm. squib that appeared in the trades that uh todd browning's next production was going to be Dracula. Wow, 10 years previous. 10 years previous. And uh, Mrs. Stoker had not been <laughs> talked about. Uh, I just I'll talk to about the uh, Right, this is two years before Nosferatu. And uh, Browning had been working, had just started working with Cheney. He had uh, done a film called Outside the Law that was a big success with, with, with Cheney, who was was a quick a quickly rising you know superstar in Hollywood and that didn't happen and uh, and Cheney went over to uh, uh, universally did the Phantom of the Opera uh, 
or he he, he hadn't yet gone to uh, MGM, but he did Hunchback and the Phantom at Universal, and Phantom was a very embattled uh, uh, production. It was a huge success when it finally came out. How it got past the finish line is, yeah. and uh, Cheney, uh, uh, Rupert Julian was the nominal director, but <laughs> Cheney apparently uh, directed a lot of it himself. Yeah, and. Um, uh, and he took refuge at MGM, and it would have been very difficult to dislodge him. I saw some of the uh, the attempts, the, some of the correspondence back and forth between Universal's lawyers and and MGM's to try and, and get Cheney. To try back. to do it. They even uh, there was one letter that just kind of floored me, where it said they uh, were considering a dual role in Dracula for Cheney, which obviously would have been. Van Helsing and 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 Dracula, right? And uh, that, that didn't go anywhere. Uh, meanwhile, other uh, names got floated out there. Conrad Veidt, I had the man who laughs, uh, was was considered. Uh, he had done the man who laughs with uh, Paul Lenny. Mm-hmm. Lenny got sick and died of blood poisoning, and he had had a great success with the Cat and the Canary and. And, and all that. So it, it, it once again, it's just this, ta- I, I called the book The Tangled Web of Dracula from Novel to Stage to Screen. Right, right. And it's just all of the, the, the crazy ideas. And But and, Todd Browning is the right guy at the right time. And his background, tell us a little bit about his background as a carny and how he became a director. And uh, Well, like a lot of people in the silent era, he came up through American popular entertainment. Yeah. Um, well, this of a very different sort. Yes, yeah. but uh, uh, carnivals, uh, right. circus sideshows, dark carnival. Uh, yeah. Yes, and uh, 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 vaudeville, and uh, he was self-taught all the way. And uh, and one of his uh, early stints, apparently, I'm not quite sure if I totally believe the story, was playing a uh, hypnotic living corpse, <laughs> who literally was buried alive in a coffin with a. Uh, a periscope that people could look down to see that he was in there for uh, you know for a couple of days and then and then dug up. Uh, I did actually see that act done uh, much later. It was a gimmick uh, for uh, at least in Cleveland, Ohio, for drive-in uh, engagements of the premature burial. Oh, wow! By <laughs> Roger Corman yeah. and this family set up a little tent and they hypnotized one of their kids and they put him underground and I, I went up and I looked down and yes he was in there they had a little lights on him <laughs> <laughs> but, and, uh, but Browning was quite a character right? he really was and uh, totally self-taught he was uh, kind of a jack of all trades he uh, was involved in every aspect of, of his um, of his productions he conceived the stories he wrote some of the stories he uh was there in the editing room he uh on on the set it was possible in the silent days you uh you could keep up a, s- a steady stream of patter you know with your actors telling yeah. them what you wanted from moment to moment and now do it and you could have musicians on stage and and he did all of these things and he was one of the highest paid directors in in hollywood um, one of the rare the ones who didn't come from theater, right? Well, um, well, a different when, kind when of talk, theater. When talkies talkies came along, suddenly uh, the live theater became the major source of uh, uh, of new talent in Hollywood, because uh, um, and uh, Browning had no experience you know, directing uh, stage actors, yeah, speaking dialogue. And here and, comes Bela Lugosi, who had starred in the Broadway show, and Browning and he are thrust together. Here. Yes, and one of and and I think he was clinging to his silent ways of working, which resulted in some of Dracula's best moments, mm-hmm. um, uh, the silent moments. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Dracula in his crypt, staring. Dracula in front of the fog, staring. Uh, <laughs> He was, uh, um, I talked to uh, uh, Carol Borland, who worked with him on on stage in a, a kind of a condensed version of 
Dracula, but she saw him in the in the, the touring production, and she said uh, he did very little on stage. He would just stand absolutely still mm. and staring, and then suddenly one eyebrow would shoot up. <laughs> and she said that uh, uh, she thought George Hamilton in Love and Love at First Bite did one of the best impressions of really? Lugosi That's as funny. he played Dracula on stage. Well, as Browning was shooting on the Universal lot, when they shut down at night, a Spanish-language version of the film was being made at the same time. That's true, and that's the uh, the incomplete print that I uh, found at the Library of Congress, and I went down there and set it up on a moviola and watched it, and, and it was uh, going to be... Originally, I wanted Hollywood Gothic to be a kind of a... Um, hugely illustrated you know frame by frame kind of yeah uh, uh comparison of the these two these two films and i had already received an invitation from the uh, cinemateca de cuba where a full print of the spanish dracula existed and uh was prepared to go down there and i approached universal about it and they uh i had an offer from uh, ww w. norton one of the, one of the better uh, reputations of of all New York publishers, and uh, they still um, turned it down. They said, no, it's easy for execs at the studios to say no. Yeah, much and, easier. And so that's kind of where we were. And they said, no, and you can't use any photos, and you can't do this and that. Well, I did the biggest copyright search of my life. Every goddamn image, every photo, uh, nothing had ever been copyrighted. Actually, in those in in those days, the copyright law required individual stills, not not frame blowups, but publicity stills and scene stills would have had to have been copyrighted individually as a graphic work, hmm. and uh, no studio ever did this. And so, pre nineteen seventy seven, it's all public domain, right? And uh, people still call me up all the time, and they're saying, publisher is giving me problems they want me to go to universal i said you you don't have to i said i'm no. not i'm not giving i'm not a lawyer but public domain is public domain yep and there's no question about this yeah and um but uh but once you go to a, it it doesn't matter if you find that out after the fact if you enter a contract with with somebody or a stock photo house to pay an exorbitant sum you're 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 kind of stuck with it it's a matter of contract law, not copyright law. Well, what do you think is the appeal of Dracula in particular? I mean, I didn't intend for the entire show to be about the history of Dracula, but I think it's great, and you, we'll, we'll you can do all, it about others. You can others. always ask me back. <laughs> well, uh, that, will, <laughs> that will certainly happen. But, but Dracula in particular seems to be, other than Sherlock Holmes, the most filmed character uh, in, in motion picture history, it seems. It he he really is, and the book is unique in that it has its roots in the oral tradition of folklore, which Stoker transformed into a literary uh, uh, medium. Yeah, it's a for, unique structure for a short period of time. Yeah. But then it also found its most lasting impact in the age of the moving image. Uh, which is uh, another non-literary form. And, uh, and just like the folklorists who w would take a, uh, a traditional tale, every teller would add something new to it. It's like a game of telephone. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in the moving image. Um, everybody who's ad adapted Dracula, either to the stage or to the... cannot... It touches them on some primal storytelling level, and they have to take it in another direction or they have some other bright idea uh stoker had a lot of second thoughts and ideas there are many right. things in his notes that never and characters that never found their way into the book but i used to be of the uh opinion the rather didactic opinion that uh uh stoker has never been given his due they've never adapted this the way it should have been and i think that I, I was mistaking the nature 
of motion picture adaptations and what right. we expect. The literalness them. of uh, an adaptation of a book. A movie is not a book. It isn't. They are different media. And even yeah. bad adaptations of Dracula keep the the old story alive. Right. And well, let's, that's, as someone who probably knows that material more than anybody else, how would you compare Bela Lugosi to Christopher Lee to Gary Oldman to the the British TV series? They're all, they're, you know, they're all wonderful. And people ask me, what's your favorite version of yeah. the film? It's a similar question. And I say, well, it doesn't exist, but it would be this mashup yeah. of, you know, the backbone of Stoker's story. But just tell it with constantly shifting uh, clips from from the different films. And then you would get something kind of approaching uh, Stoker. I think Lugosi could have been, obviously he doesn't look anything like... Uh, described in the book. Yeah. Described in the book. But he With could have... With the teeth and the razor. Uh, all and the he had to... Whiskers the, and the, uh, the uh, mustache. The, he would have looked a lot... I think uh, if they had done Dracula in a more literal way, it would have been very simple. They simply had to age him. Add the, the goatee and mustache from uh, White Zombie. Yeah. <laughs> and you would, you would have had, a, you know, a Dracula for the ages um, who does rejuvenate as he, you know, comes to. Uh, and th there were many missed opportunities. But each actor who's played Dracula just brings something so different and unique to it. Well, the hammer approach with full color and garish blood spilled everywhere yes. uh, and the ferocity of Christopher Lee's Dracula, as well as the sexuality. Well, sexuality. It. I mean, he's, 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 he's a rapist from beyond the grave. <laughs> yes. And it's yeah. this, uh, um, there's a sexuality that I, I've, you know, taught the novel and the 1931 film in many in many college courses, and I always ask my students, and I had a, my Trinity College uh, class, it was all women, and I said, okay, you know, the, the story is Lugosi was supposed to have been some kind of sexy matinee idol at the time. What do you make of Lugosi's sex appeal? And to a woman, they all said, ew, no. <laughs> uh -huh. And... Uh, <laughs> But this idea of what's uh, what's scary, what's attractive, what's yeah. what otherness is like—it's fluid over it's, time. It's all yeah. fluid. And uh, uh, Frank Langella is one of my favorite yeah. Draculas, who also did it in a revival on Broadway before doing the movie for Universal in the seventies. He did, and uh, and I was there, uh, not opening night, second night. <laughs> I was in the second row, and. Uh, he nailed this romantic conception of Dracula, which is right. anathema to Stoker, but uh, it predated Stoker, the idea of the uh, aristocratic seductive vampire. And uh, audiences and producers just seem to demand it, and it's now a permanent right. you know, part of the Dracula legacy. And L Langella is just so brilliant, especially in the way he just throws away certain lines. He doesn't have to hit them too hard. And there is a, uh, a wonderful scene where he's having, he's at a dinner party with Kate Nelligan and they're talking about uh, ghost stories. And Kate Nelligan says, oh, I love being frightened. <laughs> and Dracula just turns to her and says, do you? <laughs> great moment. That's it. Yeah. Uh, no, hardly any expression, but it, it's yeah, great we've significance. Had, we've had John Badham on the show talking about it and, and his admiration for the Did you ask him why he killed Lucy twice in two no, different ways? I, I'm afraid I didn't. <laughs> Next I, time. I've been trying to figure that one out for years. Next time. But, you know, Coppola brought something incredibly new. Well, even Dan Curtis brought something new and, and aggressive to, to the to the television version that he did of Dracula with Jack Palance. But Gary Oldman's Dracula is also revelatory. It's... Uh, There's I, a I've lot been, of I've disagreement been, I've been on... Mo I've been more impressed by it on uh, subsequent viewings than I was the first the first time around. It holds and up really well. He's, it gets he's a masterful actor. Yeah. He, and the... Um, um, I've recently seen some test makeups... For him, that have uh, I had never seen before. Oh, the Greg Canham makeups. Yeah, yeah, and 
I think the film probably tried to do too much yeah. just through well, it's everything. it's quite operatic, and I find that to be one of the best things about it. Um, uh, visually, yes. I mean, it, it's just absolutely fascinating. But the one thing, though, about all these Draculas, no matter how good the actor is, is that they inevitably bring up comparisons to Lugosi, yeah. who has just burrowed into the public consciousness. Well, he was the first he, on screen. And and obviously one of the most effective. Yeah. He, um, uh, people who've never seen the film know who he is. Yeah. Any 10-year-old kid. It's Count Chocula. Yes, they've seen, they've, they've gotten it. Uh, Spoofs of him. Through, through through somewhere and uh it was like me i hadn't i was totally hooked on lugosi's dracula at the age of 10 and it took me six years which was like a lifetime before i ever saw the film yeah and uh so there, there is this 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 strange dark charisma of that characterization that um uh is really for all time and uh, uh he uh, it's too bad, you know, his career suffered so badly because of Dracula, because he's had the last laugh in terms of his, <laughs> his uh, longevity, his longevity yeah. In, 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 in the role. He is Dracula for all time. And the character itself, just the concept of the immortal and living on one's blood, uh, you know, is... Oh, it's a, it's a it's, wish fulfillment. Dracula represents all the things we uh, secretly desire but maybe don't want to admit publicly <laughs> yeah well i think the story of dracula from from novel to screen to the modern day is one of the most fascinating of all the monsters but we need to talk again about all of the universal monsters and the history of that so uh but i so appreciate and anybody should read hollywood gothic who's interested at all in this story well, and you. monster show there are so many uh great books that are journalistic and yet novelistic in their approach in their storytelling and uh, so i thank you for sharing that with us and we'll do it again thank you very much i i i love your podcast by oh, the way thank you it's it's so much fun to listen to and i uh, i do frequently <laughs> oh thank you so much well i appreciate you being a part of it and we'll do it again thank you Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.